Um, who was at Dover Gorge last week? It's great. And so we, you may have seen this guy up front. He has been here for one of our ministry moments. His name is Adam Stein, everyone. He's mic'd up. He's got the Bible in, out in front. Uh, here's what's happening is that this next month, he is going to go through an assessment with planting Appalachian churches, PAC, we call it. And uh, if he passes that assessment, man, good luck. He will be invited into a church planting residency. He and his wife, Mackenzie, are praying about starting a church in Hampton. So we wanted to continue to keep him in front of you guys so that you can put a name or a face with a name and then also prayers for that name, if that makes sense. So let me do this. Let me go ahead and pray for Adam, and then we will have him deliver the message this morning. King Jesus, we are so grateful just to be here and among one another. We've already seen so much and heard so much of your goodness and your greatness. And now as we open up your word, we want to hear from you. Thank you for Adam. Thank you for his obedience. We just pray, Lord, as he preaches to us, as he gets to open the word, that God, that we will be receptive hearers. We pray for strength and boldness in the gospel to be presented now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm on. Thank you, Abe. Hey, good morning, everybody. As you said, my name is Adam Stein. Uh, I'm excited to be here, excited to join in with you all and um, get a, to be a part of this sermon series. And uh, Spencer's pronounced it the realia. Um, I think Jeremiah last week said uh, re- realia. So um, we'll, we'll just take a, a vote. You guys send in your answers how you think it's pronounced. I'm not even going to tell you how I think it's pronounced. You do not want to trust me on pronunciation. But I'm excited to be a part of this sermon series, and um, I haven't been here each week with you all, but in Redstone, Elizabethan, which is where me and my wife attend, we were also doing the same sermon series, and I don't think we're like on track week by week, but the same series, the same theme is what we're working through. And so up to this point, I do know that you all have been looking at how is Jesus using food and drink and the opportunities that those create for his ministry? What are we learning from these things? Sometimes it's things he says. Sometimes it's things he does, and we've talked a lot about, I know Spencer has shared, you guys have talked a lot about how is Jesus tearing down barriers and going to the sinners and going to the tax collectors and even receiving chastisement from the Pharisees and then giving it back in, in rebukes and discussions about, your, you know, why are you spending time with these people? So food and drink is something Jesus continues to use to teach his disciples then and to teach us now. And so I get the opportunity to to be a part of this sermon series, and today we'll be looking at uh, Luke chapter 9. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. And this is a very well-known passage. This is Luke's account of the feeding of the 5,000. And so if you have grown up in church or been in church for for any period of time, this is a familiar uh, passage. Even if you're not involved with church, this is something that people have heard about at times and uh, really well known. But I'm going to read it, and then we'll dive right in. So starting in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him, Jesus, all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the days began to wear away. And the twelve came up and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. 
They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And they had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. There's a lot there. And I'm really excited to get into this. And so up to this point, like I said, we've, we've talked about how does Jesus use food and drink. This study of this sermon series has been focused around that. And here we have one of the quintessential passages of Jesus using food to teach, food to provide. And there's a lot here. We have, um, up to this passage, we've had a lot of miracles done. We've had a lot of things Jesus has said. But I want us to note where Luke places this miracle. Now, this is one of the only, other than the resurrection, miracles that is in all four Gospels. All four Gospels are sharing the same ministry and talking about the ministry of Jesus, but they provide us with different information about different miracles and different things that Jesus said. And sometimes they overlap, and other times they focus on certain things that the other one doesn't. But this miracle is one of the only that all four Gospel writers include, and for good reason. And Luke places it, and if, if you zoom out and, and look at the, the, the way that Luke writes his letter, writes this book, is up to this point in Jesus' ministry, it's referred to as the Galilean ministry. A lot of focus on this local Galilean ministry. But right here, after our text, and shifting into the rest of chapter 9 and going on into chapter 10, and the rest of Luke, it's the Jerusalem ministry. Luke says several times that he turns his face towards Jerusalem. There's this shift because Jesus knows what he's going towards, and Luke is writing to help us understand that there's this shift coming from the Galilean ministry, this ministry and these works that he's doing, towards the ministry of the cross, towards the ministry of Jerusalem. And Luke places this passage right here to kind of wrap up, to kind of be this, this bookend for this part of Jesus' ministry, and then to help shift into the next part, this focus of the move and the shift towards Jerusalem. But if you look out of our passage just a little bit, you don't have to look hard. Directly before, directly after, we see these bookends that Luke uses to place our passage in. Luke surrounds our text today with a repetition of the same question. And so we'll see if this thing is working. All right, I think I figured it out. Back or forward, back, forward. So we're going to do that every time. But in, in Luke chapter 8, so the chapter before this, not very far, verse 25 there's this miracle, and you can go back and read it another time, but this moment where Jesus calms the storm, this great miracle where Jesus calms the storm, and the disciples are overwhelmed by what they just witnessed. And this is the conversation I want to zoom in on right here. He, Jesus, said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. This is after he's accomplished this miracle. And they marveled, saying to one another, look at this question, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him. And Luke puts that there in chapter 8. He wants us to be asking the same question. It doesn't answer it just yet, but that's the question. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Who is this man that even the winds and the waves and the, the storm, it obeyed him? And then we get on into chapter 9. And, and the passage, or I'm sorry, the verses directly before what we read today, 
Um, let's see here. Yeah, verse uh, 9. So it talks about Herod the Tetrarch, who was the, kind of the ruler of the area. And he had been hearing about what Jesus was doing. He had been hearing about this ministry. So Herod is perplexed. And it's very interesting. Luke chooses out of all the places he could place this conversation from Herod. He puts it right here before our text. This is where he puts it. And so in verse 8, it said by some, um, I'm sorry, in verse 7, so a little bit before what I gave you there, it says he was perplexed, Herod, because it was said by some that John, um, John the Baptist, had been raised from the dead. And Herod had had John the Baptist killed. So it's like, who's doing these works? Some people said, oh, John the Baptist is raised from the dead. Some, Elijah has appeared. Others said, he's one of the prophets of old, has risen. And in verse 9, Herod said, John I beheaded. He's gone. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought, Herod sought to see Jesus. So we had this question right before our passage, who is this? And then if you'll jump over our passage, but look directly after it, the other bookend that Luke uses is right here in verses 18 through 20. So our passage today, our text was 10 to 17. So in verse 9, right before it, kind of the preface was this question by Herod, echoing the question the disciples asked, who is this? And then Herod asked, who is this? And then Jesus now with the disciples it says, now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. And he, Jesus asked the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Now Jesus is asking, but it's the same question. Luke puts it right here for us to, to really capture this. Well, the disciples said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Look at that. That is a copy and paste. That's the exact words that Herod, that's the same things that Herod was hearing from people. And so that's what the crowds are saying. The same questions being asked by Jesus. But then, I love this, in verse 20, Jesus turns to them and says, but who do you, his disciples, his closest followers, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ of God. Christ, Christos, uh, in Hebrew, the Messiah, the Savior, the anointed one. And that would be a whole sermon I could do in and of itself about what that title and what all that Peter is saying when he confesses who Jesus is. There's a lot that comes with that. But the fact of the matter remains that the identity of Jesus is paramount to our passage. Why? Because directly before Luke puts the question is, he wants us as the reader to be asking, who is Jesus? Then our passage happens, and then immediately after, Jesus turns in disciples and says, who am I? Or who do you, the crowd say that I am, and who do you say that I am? And Luke wants us to know, that as Peter proclaims and confesses, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior, the anointed one. And so whatever is going to be in our passage that we just read, verses 10 through 17, whatever that is, Luke is using it as the evidence for, the support to, the answer that Peter gives. It is the answer to the question, or helps support the answer to the question, who is this man? Who is this man that even the storms obey him? Who is this man that I hear such things about? Who is this man that, what are the crowds saying? What are you saying to the disciples? Jesus says, you are the Christ of God. And Luke puts those right before and right after. So whatever, before we even really get into our passage, we know that whatever it is, Luke's using it as support or evidence to answer the question, who is Jesus? His identity is wrapped up in this text. 
And so Peter responds to Jesus' question with a resounding statement that Jesus is the Christ of God in verse 20. And Luke wants us to understand that it's intricately related to the confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The same question keeps getting asked. Oh, it did work. So kind of our first truth, our first main takeaway before we move on to any more is this text helps reveal to us that Jesus is the Christ. And the miracle that we just read about, that we're very familiar with, Luke wants us to know that this was huge in the mind of the disciples for them to proclaim Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus was not just a prophet of old. Jesus was not just Elijah. Jesus was not just a second or a coming back of John the Baptist. Jesus was the Messiah. And this miracle that we've just read about, if you back up and, and think about what we read, this passage helps us to understand that. But how? Well, we see a couple things about Jesus' identity tied up in this passage. We see Jesus' heart of compassion for the crowds. If you look there in your text, in, in verse 11, he invites the crowds in, even though they're in, interrupting their retreat. Um, he he um, invites the crowd. You see his authority over the disciples. And so for Luke's audience, this would have been the disciples, the apostles, were the, the columns of the foundation of the church. In this text, they're listening, obeying Jesus, so you see this authority. But really, it's his divine power. Verses 16 and 17 kind of lay it out, and Luke doesn't give us a lot of explanation, but he doesn't have to of what happens here. This divine power, this miracle, we can't skip over that. I think it's tempting to read this passage, especially when you're familiar with it, and say, I I know how this ends, kind of skim through it and, and move on. But I want us to pause. Before I move on to some takeaways, before we talk about, well, what does this mean to us today, I just want us to pause and worship. As if this is the first time you've ever read this before. It's just the first time. Imagine you open this up and you're writing about what somebody witnessed and you read this for the first time. That's how I want us to respond. In order for us to understand this passage, we have to recognize the magnitude of the miracle that just took place, that we just read about. 5,000 people. Well, approximately. Probably a lot more. A little bit of food. Jesus turns to these crowds that have kind of interrupted their time of retreat that he's supposed to be having with the disciples. If, if you look in verse 10, it says, on their return, the apostles told him all they had done. The apostles had been sent out to go on mission. At the beginning of chapter 9, you could read that. They've returned from their mission of proclaiming the kingdom of God, of, of bringing healing and casting out demons, and they're excited. They're telling Jesus. Jesus said, let's go to a way to a place that's desolate. Let's go to Bethsaida. Let's go. I want to hear your debrief. And the crowds find out, and the crowds kind of come in on, intrude on this retreat. You see Jesus compassionately say, come in. He welcomes them, begins to proclaim the kingdom of God, share the good news. He begins to bring healing to these people. But then at the end of the passage, this huge crowd, a little bit of food, the numbers don't add up, but Jesus accomplishes what can't be done apart from the Christ of God, apart from God himself. So Luke wants us to know Jesus did what only God has the ability to do. That's the point that Luke is trying to make. Luke makes it very clear this event solidified Jesus' identity for his disciple. And Luke wants his readers to come to know this as well. If you get nothing else when you read this text, the identity of Jesus, how you leave responding to that question, who is Jesus, this passage has got to be a part of that. Because Luke is saying this passage answered that question for the disciples or was a part of it. Luke is saying this passage helps answer that for me. 
And so as the reader, he wants us to know, I've got the question, I popped the question and they're everywhere for you. Keep asking, who is Jesus? And then read this text and see what you come away with. And Luke is saying, and he wants us to stand in worship of saying that just like the disciples said, just like Peter said, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior. And so before we move on, before we dig into, okay, well, what exactly was happening here? And what's our lesson for us today? Or how do we apply this in our life? How do I turn all this little bit of food into a magnificent feast? Before we get into all these questions, I want us to pause, like I mentioned before, and ask the question, who is Jesus? And I want you to ask that question, who is Jesus? You may have a very solid answer. That's good. But it's healthy to keep asking this question, to keep reminding ourselves of the answer. Why do you respond with the answer that you have? Who is Jesus? Luke is asking this question. Herod's asking the question. The disciples are asking the question. Jesus is asking the question. Who is this Jesus? And this text, this feeding of the 5,000, this miracle, where Luke doesn't really have to explain it because the numbers explain it themselves, it could only be done by one who was divine. It had to be a miracle. This kind of laughable amount of food multiplied to feed an impossible number of people. And Luke's saying, he is the Messiah. So before we move on, I want us to just think and worship. I think it's easy to read this sometimes and view it as elementary. To view it as, ah, that's such a good kid's story. Now let's get to the deep stuff. But these passages like this give our faith foundation. That the Jesus that we believe in We can take him at his word. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. Why? Because a lot of people witnessed him doing what only God could do. And in in addition to the miracle of the resurrection, which we just celebrated Easter not long back, but Luke wants us to know, man, this miracle stuck in the minds of the disciples. It stuck in the minds of the people who were there. Only God could do something like this. If you even think back to Genesis... And, you know, me and my wife are in seminary, and we talk about ways that God created something, everything, out of nothing. Only God has the power and the ability to do that. But look what Jesus does here. It's not like Jesus just keeps breaking it, and everybody gets this tiny little piece. He doesn't divide the bread and the fish. He multiplies it. Only God can do that. Any of us could take it and and crunch it down into 5,000 little pieces. If we worked really hard, we could do that but it said that they ate to their fill and that there was leftovers making us understand that everybody was full. That's impossible unless God intervened. So before we move on, our answer to the question of who is Jesus and our reasoning as, well, why do I believe that? That's huge. This passage we have to read and we, we, Luke desires us to read and to leave in worship, in response to, in celebration of, with a foundation, with support and evidence to say, man, I believe you are the Messiah. I believe you are the Savior. I believe you are the one, the anointed one, the one that we place our faith in. And this passage, along with a lot of others, but for today, this passage supports that. I'm going to hold on to that, just like the disciples did. I think it's easy to skip past that. So I wanted us to just stand in that obvious. Jesus' identity is really tied up in this passage. This passage teaches us first that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ of God. That's the first takeaway that Luke wants us to have. Luke wants his readers to get. But 
what, what else do we get from this passage? Because I think as a kid growing up, I, I took that, and, and I don't know about you, but that's what I left with, and that would be good. I understood the feeding of 5,000. Jesus did a miracle. Okay, Jesus is God. Awesome. That's true. That's what is happening here. We've got to keep reading the text. There's more. Luke, Luke has more for us. Luke has more for the readers. Jesus had more for his disciples. Not only does Luke use this passage to help support the claim that Jesus is indeed the Savior, but in the heart of our passage is an invitation from Jesus to the, the apostles or to the disciples. There's this invitation. So we've looked at Jesus' identity. This passage really supports that. And we've got to start there. You can't skip past that. But if you've got that foundation and you've got that building block, and then we move on to look at this invitation right in the middle of the passage. Jesus has commissioned and sent his disciples to go and to be about his same mission. If you were to read and look at verses 1, if you were to read and look at verses 6 in the same chapter, you see Jesus commissioning and sending out and inviting the disciples to be a part of his mission. And they went out and they were proclaiming the kingdom of God. And they were seeing healings happen at their hands. And they were seeing God work through them, joining in the same mission that Jesus does. And then in verse 11, you see Jesus, word for word, doing the same thing that he had sent the disciples to do. Proclaim the kingdom of God and, and heal people. So the, the disciples had been invited, and they had gone out and commissioned, and they were doing these things in verses 1 and in verses 6. And then they come back, and look, Jesus is doing the same exact thing, word for word, proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing people. So he's invited them to be a part of his same mission. But then, look, the invitation continues. In verses 12 through 14, if you'll turn, and if, or you can look up here. Look at verses 12 and, and verses 14, or through 14. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came, the apostles, the disciples, they came and said to him, hey, send the crowd away, go into the countryside, it's getting late. Help them to find, we need to send them away to find lodging and get provision, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Look at this invitation. It's continuing, it's not the first time he's called them to do what only he can do, or to, I mean to join in his mission, but right here he says, you give them something to eat. Inviting or commanding and calling the disciples, the apostles, into his mission. You give them something to eat. And I imagine they step back. We've got no more than five loaves and two fish. Well, unless we're able to go to the Sam's Club and, and, and run in there really quick and load up on all this food for this many people. Like Even today, that would be a logistical nightmare with our access to groceries. This number of people. That's a nightmare to just, on the spot, hey, you feed them. Uh... Okay, because it says there were about 5,000 men, huge crowd of people, a lot of hungry people. So don't blame the disciples for saying, hey, Jesus, we know you're doing a great thing. People got to go home. People got to go somewhere to eat. This hasn't been done before. I don't think the disciples were not working off of like, yeah, Jesus feeds 5,000 people all the time. He's done a lot of great things, but it's not like the disciples have read this story before. So let's, let's cut them some slack. They're just looking at just the same way we would, the obvious of... Food, people, doesn't add up. Hey, Jesus, we know you're doing great things. Maybe bring them back tomorrow. They got to go somewhere. And Jesus turns and this amazing invitation, you feed them. You feed them. And the response, but look here, this is, this is the invitation that we're talking about. Jesus invites his followers to be a part of his mission. In his great plan, Jesus has invited his disciples to follow him in the work that he does. 
in his kingdom work, in his ministry. He invites the disciples to be a part of it. It's an amazing moment because as we've discussed already in our first main point, Jesus' identity, Jesus' divinity, we've talked about this, so we recognize that Jesus, God the Son, robed in flesh, himself is standing right here. And I don't know how Jesus operates all the time, but I imagine Jesus could have snapped his finger and everybody could have been full. Or Jesus could have done just created food to start coming out of the ground. In the Old Testament, God created manna to come down from heaven and people ate it. There's so many ways that Jesus could have done this by himself and that would have been awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus chooses to turn to his disciples and say, you give them something to eat. Knowing full well that they don't have enough food. But the invitation still remains. We see this throughout all of scripture. God and Jesus is inviting his people to be a part of his work his redemptive work. We see that in Jesus' ministry on earth, right here, inviting the disciples in, and we see that throughout the Old Testament in different ways. We see that throughout the rest of the New Testament. God is doing a work, and for some reason, in his sovereignty and in his grace, he invites people, his people, to be a part of that work. And that's happening right here in this passage. That theme is playing out right here in front of our eyes. The mission that Jesus had sent the apostles on at the beginning of the passage Verses 1, verses 6. That's the same mission that Jesus was accomplishing in verse 11. And it's the same mission continuing. It's not stopped and started. Continuing as he invites his disciples to feed the crowds. You've got to proclaim the gospel with your mouths. I've, I've worked through you to bring healings. Now keep doing what I've called you to do. Feed the crowds. These people that I'm welcoming in. That I'm loving. The crowds that need a savior. You've understood that I am the Messiah We recognize this in the passage. Now go and begin to take to them what I give you. So he's inviting them. And ultimately, this is the same mission still continuing today. Nuanced, yeah, contextually sometimes different, but the same heart, the same mission, the same redemptive work that God has been working throughout all of Scripture that Jesus accomplishes and then commissions his disciples to go out is the same mission that his disciples 2,000 years later, followers of Jesus today, were still invited to be a part of this mission. We're invited to be a part of his work. Jesus is still commissioning and inviting us to be a part of this mission. He's still looking at the church today and he's calling us into his great work. All of those who've been born again, all of those who have been redeemed, all of those who are followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, the Messiah that we've already talked about, we believe that, and the gospel has, been, has transformed us, and we are God's children, then we also receive invitations from Jesus himself. The Son of God himself sends us an invitation and calls us in to his mission. And if you're like, well, I don't know, you got a text for that? You got some supporting passages? Because, yeah, I've never heard Jesus look at me and say, hey, you, give them something to eat. You're right. I've never heard Jesus say that to me either. You give them something to eat. Are you sure though? Mark 16, 15. At the end of Mark, he says that the disciples were commissioned and called and invited to proclaim the gospel. Same mission that we've been called to, proclaim the gospel. To be salt, Matthew 5. To be light, we are invited to these things as the church, as the New Testament believers. This is not true just of the 12, just of those right there. This is true of the church eternal. These 
commands and these invitations were given by Jesus, have been given by God and are in his word for the church until Christ returns. And so these invitations apply to us today. To be a blessing, Romans 12. We've been invited to love those around us in the church and outside of the church. The invitation continues. I've got a lot more, so don't get too overwhelmed. In, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, we've, we read that a lot. Jesus invites us to make disciples. And if you thought the invitation to feed the 5,000 was big, go back and read this again and think of it through this lens. Jesus has called his disciples, the original that were there, and he promises this will be the call for all disciples following. He says, go make disciples. Well, how many? Of all the nations until I return. If you think the disciples felt underwhelmed or uh, under, uh, with the, not enough resources to accomplish the mission, then read this and think about what we've been called to. Because now, now that we step back and really begin to look at this big picture mission, the feeding of the 5,000 is like, okay, can I choose that one? Because this is huge. We've called to be servants with humility, to serve in the church and to serve those outside the church for the glory of God, for the gospel. We've been called to reflect Christ through the fruit of the Spirit, as, as explained in Galatians 5, to reflect in the way that we live our life. We've been called to meet the needs of the poor, the hungry, the hurting, and the lonely. And so earlier when I said, I don't think I've ever heard Jesus say to me, go feed them. I'll take that back. Because now that I think about it, Jesus has said that to me and to you. To all those who are his followers, God says, my people will be known by these things. Feed them. Meet the poor, the hungry, the hurting, the lonely. And in Micah 6, 8, he says, I desire that you would walk in my ways and that you would seek justice. God desires justice. He is just, and he wants his people to walk in justice and in fairness and in equity and these, these things. And, and so we see the way that Jesus invites the disciples to feed the 5,000. And we may read that and be like, well, that's cool for them. What about me? I'm not, I don't have 5,000 people coming to my door, and I don't even really like fish, so no worries. That's not the point. Jesus is inviting us today. And I think I want us to see that to recognize that, because it's easy to read past it and be like, okay, yeah, Jesus fed a lot of people. Okay, I got it figured out. Jesus fed a lot of people, so this passage is telling me Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, good. That is true. That's what we talked about to start with. But Luke also wants us to recognize, and all four of the gospel accounts, if you were to read all four of them, all include the same invitation. You feed them. You give them something to eat. You take care of them. And the invitation is big. And the invitation to us as the church, 2,000 years removed from this, we still stand with these beautiful, grand invitations from God himself, as sending us invitations through his word to be a part of his mission that he on his own could accomplish in any other way. Why? I ask this all the time. Why would God not simply save people, snap his fingers, transport them to heaven, and go save somebody else, and snap his fingers and transport them to heaven, but yet he redeems us and you were still here. He redeems us and says, now go live for me as many days as I bless you with in this life until I return, be about my mission. The mind of God is above ours. His ways are higher than our ways, but the truth still stands. God in his grace and God in his sovereignty has invited his people. This has been a part of his character in the Old Testament, Jesus' life and ministry uh, on earth, and then even after Jesus ascended, invites those who are his people to join in his mission. And we have to see that. And so, before we move on to our last leg of the journey, 
where is Jesus inviting you? And I, I put where for a reason. Originally, I put how is Jesus inviting? What is Jesus inviting? And I think all of those would work. But right now, before we move on to the last part, I just want us to think where. Because, yes, I can read the text, and then I can step back and think, how does it apply today to us as the disciples of the church in 2023? Okay, I've got these 10 supporting passages and many more. Yes, I understand the general concept that as a Jesus follower, I'm invited to be a part of the mission of God. Big picture. That's up here. That's great. How do we narrow that in? Because I'm not where you are every day, and you're not where I am. And so if we leave here today and just have this truth up here that Jesus has invited me to be a part of his mission, that's so cool. That's awesome. Yes. Where in your life, day to day, has Jesus invited you? Because these invitations, the word is not just these abstract things out here. It's got handles on it. It's right there in the day-to-day. Just like Jesus came to live and to minister in the day-to-day, in the muck and the mire, the invitation for us to minister, it's real life. It's not abstract. It's not these really awesome things way up here, even though that's true. That's that's where we start, but we bring it in. We recognize this is day-to-day. These invitations are not just out there for me to think about. These invitations are for me to, to consider in my day-to-day, in my life, tangibly? And I can't answer that question for all of us. I struggle sometimes to answer the question for myself. I'll confess, as I was preparing for the sermon, convicted in my heart of, am I looking around in my life and considering, Jesus, where are you inviting me today, this week, this year, to step in to go and make disciples? On my street, with my neighbors. Not just, oh man, go make disciples of all nations, that's awesome. But what about with my neighbors. Let's start there. I want to zoom in. Jesus, where are you inviting me to seek justice in my heart? Let's just start with my heart, in my family, in my community. Jesus, where are you inviting me to meet the needs of the poor and the hurting and the lost and the lonely? It's so easy that if we keep it out there, we can dodge it. We don't feel the weight of it. But if you let it get in the heart and get into the day-to-day, you have to look it in the eye and say, I have been invited by the King of Kings to step into his mission. I don't know why he's invited me, but he has in my day-to-day life, in my day-to-day ministry. With their moms, dads, stay at home, going to work, old, young, it doesn't matter. The invitation stands. And so for us to truly understand what God is saying through this passage, we can't simply grow in our mental recognition of the invitation. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to help us to see, God, this week, this day, this hour, would you help me see where you're inviting me today and right now to be a part of your mission? But before we finish, if we just left there, we would do a huge disservice to the passage and to ourselves. Let me explain. So far, we've dug into two of the key thrust of this passage. We've looked at the identity of Jesus. That's huge. We've got to start there. That's the foundation. We stand in worship of who he is. And then we move on to this invitation. We see this beautiful and magnificent invitation of Jesus for his followers to be his hands and feet, then and now, and to be about his mission. But if we stop there, then we miss one essential truth. Not only do we miss essential truth for what's in the passage, and we do it a disservice, but then we do a disservice to our lives as well. We miss one essential truth for our life as well. What is that? What am I talking about? 
So looking at uh, verses, I think, yeah, verses 13 through 14 here. Let's look back at the text. After Jesus invites the apostles, now we've talked a lot about this invitation. We've talked a lot about this invitation and what all that means for us even today. But after Jesus invites the apostles to give the crowd something to eat, they respond with the obvious. We don't have enough food. The numbers don't add up. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. So there's the invitation. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. The numbers don't add up. In fact, Luke makes it very clear the numbers aren't even close to adding up. So let me make a quick analogy because I didn't live in year 30 or whatever this is, and I, I don't know exactly what people were dressed like then. It's hard for me to picture. So let's make it modern. Let's understand this now. I like high school sports. I went to high school. Most of you probably went to high school. Homeschool kids, you may not be able to relate with this. But you understand what it's like to walk in a hall full of people and have a lot of people around you. And that's just one school. And you're thinking, Adam, where are you going with this? Okay, let me just explain. I got on the internet the other day because I have all this free time and I just like to look at numbers. If you took all the students at Science Hill High School right here in Johnson City, over 2,300 students, grades 9 through 12, and I'm trying to think of a big place we can gather. Freedom Hall, I don't even know if it's big enough to hold this number we're going to get to, but a huge field. Just picture a place that's big. You've got all the students from Science Hill. That's a lot of people. That's not enough. So now go call Dobbins Bennett, the other biggest school in our region, and say, hey, we want all your students to get bussed over and to sit with all the students to Science Hill. Also, over 2,000 students. Okay, we hit 5,000, roughly. That's great. Ah, but Matthew says that this number of 5,000 doesn't include the men and it doesn't include the women. You're not going to have 5,000 men gather, in the, or I'm sorry, the women and children. So we have 5,000 men, but it doesn't include the women and children. And so as you read this, it's very realistic that this crowd could have swelled easily to 8, 10, 11,000 people. So those two high schools is barely cutting it, okay? So then I looked, if you had called Tennessee High in Bristol, Said, hey, we need your biggest school. Send them down here. And they all came. Then you called Greenville High School. Said, we need all your students. And then you invited Elizabethan High School and said, we need all your students. And all of the other high schools in Carter County, where I live, so that's the one I looked at, all of those students combined. It's in between nine and 10,000 students. And then somebody handed you a box of leftover Domino's pizza with five pieces and two packs of goldfish and said, you feed them. I, I was like laughing when I did it. But then when I thought through it, I felt the weight of that. You've got a half-eaten box of pizza, two packs of goldfish, and almost all the high school students in the region gathered around, and Jesus looks at you and the other 11 of you with you and says, hey, go feed them. What? Exactly. Luke wants us to laugh, or, or it's laughable. The numbers are, there's no way. There is no possible way that they can accomplish that on their own. That's the point. It's impossible in their own strength. It would be impossible for me, to, even if I divided it, I might get 100 students fed with like one, like two slices of pepperoni, but man, they're only gonna get like a, a munch. That's the point. This is where we recognize something profound. This is huge. We can't leave today and not hear this part. Jesus is the provision for the work that he invites us to. We talked a lot about invitation, and I wanted us to feel the weight of that invitation, but if we left there, if I just said, Jesus, the Son of God himself invites you to this magnificent work, and then we closed out, 
that would, be, that would feel really heavy. To me, that would feel a little dejecting because that's a lot. And just like the disciples felt, we would look at the invitation and then we would look at our resources, we would recognize the disparity between those numbers and we would leave overwhelmed. Jesus, how are we gonna feed all these people? It's like I got some moldy bread and some nasty fish here. We can't feed all these people. That's the point. Even though Jesus has invited his disciples to give the crowd something to eat, they can't accomplish this task on their own. That's the point. And John, he says he asked them, but he already knew the answer. Jesus did this for a reason. Their resources are laughable compared to the need. However, in addition to his invitation to the church, or to the disciples then, to the church today, in addition to his invitation, Jesus is, was, and will forever be the provision for his work, the provision for his ministry. Look at the remainder of the text, 15 through 17. This closes out our passage here. For there are about 5,000 men. And remember, Matthew reminds us that doesn't include the women and children. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. And they did so. I'm just imagining the disciples are like, what is happening? And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, the Messiah himself, the Son of God, he looks to heaven, he says a blessing over it, he breaks it, and he gives it. Look at this. He continues this invitation. He's like, I'm going to pray over it. I'm going to bless it and do what only I can do. And the disciples are the ones that are the hands and feet. The disciples still are the ones that answer the invitation and take it to the people. Jesus blesses it, and somehow it's just morphing. I mean, it's just, I don't know how. They're snapping it and are not running out of it. They all ate. They were all satisfied. What was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. He organizes the crowds and all these people. And in order for us to hear this passage well and have a full understanding of it, we can't miss this. If you leave and only get the identity and, and focus on the invitation, then you're going to miss a huge paramount piece of this. Unless we recognize Jesus' provision for his invitation, unless we recognize the King of Kings' provision for his invitation, then we'll either A, be paralyzed by the disparity between our resources and the need. We'll be paralyzed in fear. We'll look at it and say, if we don't recognize his provision and we only focus on the invitation, there's no way I can do this. You just shell up. I, I can't start, I don't know where to start. I can't do this. I can't accomplish this. Remember the analogy of the pizza and the people. You look at the numbers and you're gonna pull your hair out and go hide and say, Jesus, I can't do it. Or if you are a different personality type, You'll misunderstand the invitation and fall prey to the Savior complex, the Messiah complex, where you think, okay, he's called me to it, I've got to do it, and it's all on me. And then you just run the hamster wheel, wearing yourself out. Jesus, do you see what I'm doing? Jesus, I'm doing this for you. Jesus, do you see this? But yet you never are inviting him to be a part of it. You're just running the ragged race in your own strength, and still at the end, both result in failure. One, you look and run in fear. Two, you look and take it all on yourself and collapse. But if you understand this key piece, Jesus is the provision for his work, then we get the point. I don't know about you, but I can relate so well with the response of the disciples. In John's account, this is, this is me. This is how I would have put it in my words. In John's account, he asked the invitation, and Andrew, the brother of Peter, responds with this. Well, there's a boy here. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. And I was, I was reading this passage, 
The second part of Andrew's response is my heart. But what are they for so many? Yeah, I've got this. What does it matter? Yeah, we've got this little bit, but what does it matter compared to the numbers of the crowds? I don't know about you, but when I look at the need around me, and I look at the invitation, I feel like Andrew. I feel like the disciples. Yeah, I've got this. I've got this little bit of resources. I've got this little bit of time. I've got this little bit of money. I've got this little bit of energy. Maybe you're older and you're like, I've only got a little bit of time left. Or maybe you're young and say, well, I'm only young. Or maybe you're middle-aged and say, I'm raising kids. It's funny how it doesn't matter where we're at, we all keep saying the same thing. What is it? What does it matter? The numbers don't add up. What does it matter? It's easy to look around at the vast amount of hurt, darkness, need, and sin. And then think twice about all this being on mission with Jesus stuff. We love to say, like, I'm on mission for Jesus. I'm living missionally. It's hard. And it's a big ask. And if you only look at the invitation and only look at what you have, then like me, you'll be tempted to respond like Andrew and say, yeah, I'll admit, I've got this. What does it matter? What is it for so many? But thank God that just like in our text today, Jesus has not invited us into his work without the necessary provision to accomplish his will. And again, I'm not talking big picture. Remember earlier when I said bring it down, right where you live, right in your community? Just those needs alone are overwhelming. So don't go big picture on me. We're, we're talking about where you live, where you do life, right there. Those needs in and of themselves are heavy. And in your own strength, and in my own strength, we're either going to go hide or we're going to get crushed. But the beauty of it is, is Jesus never intended, his invitation to disciples was not, I'm going to step back and see how you guys problem solve. It wasn't, I'm going to step back and see what you guys can do. It's, and John reminds us, he did it. He asked them for a reason, for a purpose, to say, I will be the provision. Jesus knew that all along, but the invitation remains. So right where you live, where's that invitation? And then, so that's why I focused the where. So in, in the invitation, that application, I said, where is Jesus inviting you? But now I want you to think about, but with what? With what is Jesus inviting you to respond? How is he providing? So you may think, I can't feed 5,000 people. That's okay. That's not the point. What fishes and loaves do you have? What education do you have? What resources do you have? What connections do you have? And don't, don't even try to pick I'm, one thing. One little thing, but that one little seed in the hands of the Savior, the Christ, who we've talked about, who this is who he is, that one seed can be planted and bring about a great growth that we could never imagine. So don't sell him short. Don't focus on your lack of resources, your lack of energy, your lack of time, and sell him short. Give it. Give it faithfully. So what loaves and fishes do you have? We could each go around and, and I would love to, but we don't have time. We could each go around and say, I've got this. Well, I've got this. That'd be awesome. And all of us would probably have different answers. So it's not my job to identify that for you. I'm saying, look, the passage is saying, he is the provision. God had this little bit of loaves and fish prepared and that Jesus would multiply. God has given you a little bit of something, and he will multiply it. That's the point. It's his mission, but he's invited you to be a part of it. What can you give? What do you have? to answer or to respond to the invitation. And so in closing and, and wrapping it up, this text today, Luke 9, 10 through 17, surrounded by bookends with the question, who is 
Jesus? We've got to leave today and be able to answer that question. Peter, and Luke puts that quote there, wants us to know that this passage today helps us support the claim, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior, the Christ, the Anointed One. And all that comes with that, Jesus is that. You can bank on it. But then, in addition to that, he invites his followers and is inviting his disciples for the remainder of the church until he returns, be about his mission. Make disciples. The 10 things I put up there, all of those things, just barely touch it. And don't be overwhelmed by the invitation. It's beautiful and it's grand. And then you have to come in with that third piece. He is the provision. And so in God's grace and God's sovereignty, he's invited his church. He invited his people. Look where you're at in your day-to-day and respond to the invitation. But do not do it thinking it's on on your shoulders. It's through him. So give what you have faithfully and humbly and let God use it in a way that we can't imagine. And so I don't want us to just leave today and think, oh man, I've never heard a lot about that. I've always thought of the feeding of 5,000 and the the amount of bread and what type of fish it was, and so that was helpful. My prayer for me and for you is that God would use his word and these reminders throughout this week, and we would begin to ask these questions in our hearts, with your kids, with your spouse, with your church, with your community group. All right. We're not called to meet all the needs of the world. We're right here in Johnson City. I'm right here on my street. I'm right here with my neighbors. What's the invitation? And then what has he already provided? It doesn't matter how little it looks. Just give it and see what he does. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity and the time to gather together and to worship you. And we thank you. As we were singing earlier, Lord, establish the work of your hands. We have short days, as we read in Psalm 90. We are frail, but yet in your grace and in your wonderful sovereignty, you've invited us, you led us to be a part of your work. Help us not to zoom in on what we don't have. Help us not to zoom in on our own self. Help us to respond to your invitation, the invitation from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Help us to respond to that invitation with what you've given us, and in worship and in humility and trust that you will take the seed and plant it to bring a growth that we will never see the fruit of until the other side. We love you. We worship you. I pray you would be with us as we close out this service. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray. Amen. Thank you, Adam. Um, It's not division. It's multiplication, and there's a big difference.